Hello, listeners. Today, we're going to talk about economics again, and it is going to be just as exciting because we're going to have a special guest, Phil Lorne, and we are going to go from making sense of GDP to then talking about cow breeding and then get to GPI. And it's going to be brain twisting and fun. Buckle in. I'm here today with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. I've got a big pink coffee and I bought Tim a big pink dirty chai latte. That's right. So he's caffeinated, sugarnated, spiced and ready to go. Hoping it doesn't make me too hyperactive uh, in this episode because it is going to be quite uh, an interesting episode. We have a very special guest with us, Phil Lorne. How are you, Phil? Um, very well, thanks. Oh, it's good to have you on. And we thanks have an me. ecological economist. So. We've had some success recently with some of our episodes about the economy and MMT, even back to Richard Heinberg and the end of growth. So there's quite a lot to discuss. But I think, David, you wanted to start with something off like uh, GDP. Yeah, well, really just to sum up the fact, like we didn't think we would become as much a podcast focusing on economics as we have been. But I think our initial premise was to do things that were important. And at the moment, to understand economics better is really important. So whether it was from talking to Richard or then talking to Stephen or now talking to Phil, you know, hopefully audience, you get the point. It's not that, you know, we want to wear suits and end up being, you know, subscribers to the financial review. <laughs> it's that we want to better understand the world we're in. And like with Stephen and with Richard, where we just said, look, present how you see and understand things. This is about increasing our knowledge. And that then hopefully extends outward to you as an audience. And audience, if you have questions, keep in mind that so much of what we're talking about with Stephen and Phil is going to be relevant components of the MMT Adelaide 2020 conference where we'll be interviewing a lot of the participants. So this is as much about us building our knowledge to ask questions, building your knowledge if you want to come to the conference, or building your knowledge if you can't come to the conference. So I think what we'll start with today is something that We've all heard about and we generally take for granted without really knowing precisely what it does or what we should use it for or if it's even really being used effectively. So, Phil, would you like to start with perhaps you know, unpacking GDP and then telling us why it isn't isn't a good and useful measure? Well, GDP, of course, stands for Gross Domestic Product and basically – there's not much to unpack, in fact. Uh, it's quite simple. Uh, GDP is just a monetary measure of uh, the quantity of goods and services produced by a country over a particular period of time. So usually when uh, you hear a GDP figure, it will be for a particular year or, say, in Australia's case, a financial year. So it's just essentially uh, you, you, you could measure quantity of goods and services produced by a country in various ways. We could... <laughs> If it was possible, if it was feasible, uh, we could weigh them all, but uh, that's not feasible. So you need a, a sort of uniform metric. So we use prices. Uh, so it's a monetary measure. But the way it's measured, it's, it's, there are various ways in which it's measured. You can use uh, keep the, the, the price that's used to value goods and services constant over time. Uh, and what you get, even though it's a monetary measure, is really something that reflects the change in the quantity of goods and services produced by a country over time. So if GDP goes up, it basically means that a country is producing more goods and services. And that's a really important point you just made that I was going to ask about is, okay, in any given year we might go, well, we, you know, we produce this many tonnes of wheat, mm. but this year wheat is $130, next year it's $170. Mm. Well, you know, whatever the number is, sorry farmers out there, it's a lot of years now since I lived on a farm and constantly had the wheat price in my head. Mm. I have failed. Mm. So... How do we decide on those value things okay. and get continuity mm. across time, or don't we? Okay. So this is where it can get a little bit technical, so I'll try and keep this as simple as possible. So there's a thing called nominal GDP, and that's where GDP for a particular year is measured in terms of the price prices of goods and services uh, as they were produced in that particular year. So if we were talking about the GDP of Australia for 2018 – Obviously, it would be made up of millions of goods and services. Let's think of a particular product, apples. So it would be the quantity of apple, apples produced times by the price of apples in 2018. And uh, we don't produce cars anymore. But if we produce cars, it would be uh, the quantity of cars times the price of cars 
uh, as they were produced in 2018. So the GDP for 2018, nominal GDP, would be based upon the price of goods and services in the year in which they were produced. Now, there's another thing called real GDP. So you can imagine with nominal GDP for, from one year to the next, there's going to be two things that are going to affect the total value, the nominal value for GDP. It's going to be the quantity of goods and services produced and the prices of goods and services in the year that are produced. So, for example, if we had a situation where, say, the quantity of goods and services produced from one year to the next didn't change, but the price of everything went up, nominal GDP would go up simply because the price of everything had gone up, okay? Then you could have the situation where the price of everything stayed the same. Let's, let's just assume it did. It wouldn't, but let's just assume that it did. And the quantity went up, then nominal GDP would go up because the quantity of goods and services produced from one year to the next has gone up. But then you can have the, the strange situation where you could have the price of everything going up, but the quantity being produced might have gone down somewhat. So with a higher price, lower quantity, what happens to nominal GDP from one year to the next will depend upon which effect is greater than the other. So, so scarcity so, can play a role in well, what any, final anything, number anything that yeah, yeah, so well, th- these will be actual prices. So we don't okay. we don't choose what the, these are the actual these prices. Are the, the, the real prices at the given time. Okay. Uh, these are the prices uh, in that particular. Now with real GDP, what we do is we say, okay, that's a bit awkward. We really know really like to know what the quantity of goods and services being produced are in a particular year and how much that's changing over time. But we've got a problem here. The price of everything is changing over time. So what they do is they say, okay, let's opt to have 2016 as our what's called the base year. And so when you calculate real GDP for every year, what you do, and if if 2016 is the base year, you say, okay, we're going to calculate GDP for 2014 based on the prices of goods and services in 2016. 2015, we're going to base it on the GDP, on the prices of goods and services in 2016. So everything is based on the prices of goods and services in a particular year. That's the base year. And you can see what happens now. Now when we go price times quantity, the price is staying the same, but the quantity is changing. So you get a monetary measure, but the only thing that's affecting real GDP is quantities, not price. So it's just a matter of electing or choosing a base year. So when you hear people talk about GDP, they're generally talking about real GDP. What year do we use as our base year? Uh, Now, it used to be that the Australian Bureau of Statistics would choose a particular year and then would change it every five years. And you can understand why, because if, uh, let's say, we chose a base year and it happened to be many years ago, 1950, (laughs) and we were still using 1950. Well, it's very hard to relate to prices in 1950. Mm. But the other problem with 1950 is that we're uh, producing computers now. There were no computers. Well, there were certainly no PCs in mm. – so there was no price for price for computers in 1950. So using the price of everything as things were in 1950, well, there are goods and services being produced now that didn't exist in 1950. So you have to have as your base year something fairly close to the current year. So it doesn't really matter okay. if we're using 2017 as our base year and we're – basing a measurement of real GDP in 1950 on prices in 2017 because, okay, there were no computers in 1950. We've got prices of computers in 2017 our base year. Well, it doesn't matter. We, we didn't produce them in 1950. That's not going to come into the calculation. Yep. So, yeah, there's this difference between real GDP and nominal GDP. So when I talk today, I'm, I'm going to basically be referring to real GDP. I won't say real GDP. But, but that's what you mean. Yeah, time. that's All what right. most people mean. When they say GDP, they mean real GDP. That means choosing a year, as I said, as a base year and basing the value of GDP on the prices of goods and services in that particular year. So the only thing that's altering real GDP are the quantity of goods and services produced, not price, because you're holding that constant. So all it's really measuring, despite the fact it's talked about in dollar terms, is how much we produce. That's it. And when you think about it, we, we don't have to value it in price. We could weigh it. But mm. when you weigh things, does a kilogram change from one year to the next? No. A kilogram is a kilogram. All right? So if you're going to have a 
measure of something, a monetary measure of the quantity of goods and services produced, you don't want the metric that you use to be changing from year to year. You don't want what yeah. constitutes a kilogram to be changing from year to year. So you say, okay, let's not change what constitutes the price of apples from year to year. We'll base it, we just have to make a decision which year yeah, are we going to use year. as our base year. Yeah. That's all we're doing. Yeah, because I think back to sort of the Russian or the Soviet five-year plans and things were always in tonnage. Right. So they'd got around this value question by only being interested in the quantity. So the question was upping the quantity. So you get you know the classic examples like you know, we want to make this tonnage of a certain kind of thing. Mm. So they just start making heavier versions of it. <laughs> so you get chandeliers that are so heavy they can't mm. be hung. Mm. Yeah, you know, that was kind of pointless, yeah, yeah. but they got their tonnage. Mm. You, you were talking about how you can kind of, let's say, adulterate maybe uh, the, the GDP by assessing, uh, you know, let's say today's GDP on 1950 when, of course, they weren't making computers. But mm. you can also, you were saying you could reverse the roles, but we're not making typewriters in 2017 when they might have been in 1950. So right. if, if it goes mm. both ways then. So yeah. some, some things yes, you yes, see how can. much our economy okay. has changed. Mm. Yeah. From production to services. So if we're looking at GDP in 1950, you still have to base, you have to put the mm. base prices yes. somewhere near 1950. Yep. Okay. Typewriters Just, as they were, in, uh, as uh, the price in 2016, they're yeah. not being produced anymore. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure how the ABS deals with that. Um, okay. But uh, they find ways and means to sort of estimate what perhaps the price of a typewriter would have been in 2016 if yeah. it was still producing yes. them. Okay. I think it's more difficult going back the other way. Yeah. yeah, using ultimately uh, you want as your base year something close to the current year Yeah, because it's difficult to relate to prices. In, so if we measured real G GDP in 2018 for Australia based on the prices of things in 1950, there probably uh, uh, not much, wouldn't be much more than Gina Reinhardt's yeah. <laughs> annual income yeah. uh, because you'd be basing it on very, very low prices. Yeah. I mean, I, I've showing my age now, but I remember when I first went to school and a pasty and a pie were 11 cents. <laughs> yeah. okay, What's a pie? I don't buy pies. I'm yeah, a, they're like $4.55. Yeah, I'm a bit older. I remember being able to get a pasty and a 600ml carton of chocolate milk for 90 cents. 90? Yeah. Well, no, I used to take a 20-cent piece to school. Oh, man. So I'm older than you. Yeah, I know, and well, buy my lunch with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well done, you. And have change. <laughs> yeah. I a little bit left over for a bit of licorice or something. You got three long pieces of licorice for two cents in those days. Yeah, yeah okay. were, were less than one <laughs> cent per piece. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> so, if GDP is mm. good for measuring, you know, how much stuff we made, mm. is it of any help for working out what buying power? People have so if Australians know that GDP went up, does that then let us? work out if our buying power is better or worse? Is that calculated mm. in a similar way or how does that work? Well, the, yeah, uh, the, the interesting thing is GDP is measured three ways and... Nominal, real and number Well, three. no, 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 that's, that's, an, that's another issue, the nominal and real. There are three approaches to actually calculating GDP. Oh, okay. And that's because a lot of people think GDP is a very precise measure and it's not. So one of them is just uh, this expenditure method, which just calculates GDP by summing up the expenditure on final goods and services. If you want to know what the value of final goods and services that you've produced, it's how much we spent on those goods and services. Yep. Right, so that's the expenditure method. But of course, when someone purchases something, that money that a person's paid is going to be someone else's income, their yep. purchasing power, yep. their purchasing power. So the income method is where... The payments received by factors of production, which of course are capital, if you own capital, labour, land, natural resources and so forth, all the goods and services uh, being produced once they're purchased, the amount that's spent will go to these factors of production and we add that up. That's the income approach, yep. which basically uh, indicates our spending power, mm -hmm. all right? so how much income we've earned. Right. Although, technically speaking, and uh, GDP, and I, I might talk about this before I get on to the uh, GPI, the reason why the GPI is a better, genuine progress indicator is a better indicator of economic welfare than GDP. GDP is sometimes also referred to as a measure of national income, and it's not really a good measure of national income. Uh, <laughs> well, I know it gets all tricky, because if you think about it, what, what's, what's the sole purpose of income accounting? It's to tell you something useful, and income properly defined should in, should indicate 
the maximum amount, not, not what you just produce, it should indicate the maximum amount that you get to enjoy consuming and not compromise your ability to be able to consume at least that same amount in the future. And, and the reason why that's important is because part of what makes up GDP is consumption of income-generating capital. And a lot of that income-generating capital is natural capital, natural oh, resources. So part of it, what it's counting is things that once you've burned them or eaten them, once they're gone. They're gone and they don't, they're not there to provide tomorrow's income and tomorrow's consumption. So it can't deal with finiteness of things it, it's calculating. That's Well, yes. Uh, so, uh-huh. and, and so a lot of what uh, goes into GDP is nothing more than consumption of capital. And really income should be the, the, the cream that settles on the top. It's what you can skim off the top and have that cream settle next year and skim it off year after year. But if what you're also uh, consuming is not just the cream but the milk, then your ability to consume the same amount of cream uh, eventually, some stage in the future, will be compromised. So GDP is a gross measure. It's not a net measure. Uh, And so a proper measure of uh, national income should be GDP less what we produce out of our GDP that we need to set aside to be able to consume at least as much as we're consuming this year, next year. That's, and that's what comprises uh, GDP aren't just consumer goods, they're capital goods. Yeah. We, we, we don't just produce goods that we consume, we produce capital goods, machines, because the machines that we're using now are going to be wearing out to produce consumer goods. So we have to replace them. So a proper measure of national income should take into account that some of what we produce can't be consumed. It has to be set aside to keep the stock of income-generating capital intact. So GDP overestimates national income. It overestimates productivity and income because it's assuming that things can only be used once are just magically going to reappear. So this would have grown out of this idea that there's always a substitute, there's always another way to do something out of classical economics? Ah. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, that is that is an assumption. Okay. Uh, it's just an indication that this thing called GDP appeared and then it was used for uh, various purposes, but inappropriately. Yeah. It was just People decided, that, oh, well, this is basically, um, as I said before, uh, one of the uh, ways to measure GDP, uh, money spent on the final goods and services, goes to the factors of production and that is in a sense their income. So therefore, what we spend on goods and services in a year, uh, that being GDP, is a measure of national income. But it's not really. I, I, I and a lot of economists uh, and even a lot of heterodox economists will, will, will refer to that as the income approach to measuring GDP. I call it the factor payments approach because it is the payments to the factors of production, yep. but that overstates income. So the payment to the so someone who is paid for making a machine that will replace a machine that's being used today that will wear out, so that new machine will have to replace that machine. They're getting paid, which of course increases their spending power. But that's from a national perspective, that that might be that person's from an individual's perspective their income. But from a national perspective, that's not national income, because that piece of machinery that they've helped produce cannot be consumed. It's got to be set aside to replace out the machines that are wearing out today. Yep. Okay, so what people get paid from an individual's point of view is that person's spending power and therefore they, they will consider it their income. But from a national perspective, what is paid to the various factors of production will exceed what is a genuine measure of income because a lot of what is produced, which people get paid to uh, help produce, cannot be consumed next year. We can't so, – so the real question is, and if GDP was, a, was an adequate measure of, of national income, this is the question you'd have to, you have to answer. Could we consume the entire GDP and still be in a position to consume at least that amount next year? And the answer, of course, is no, because to produce that GDP next year, some of the GDP that we're producing this year has to be set aside – to replace worn-out human-made capital, plant machinery and equipment, natural capital, that's uh, natural resources, stocks of natural resources that are being depleted. And you also have to uh, take into account that some of the stuff that we produce, defensive and rehabilitative forms of expenditures. So, for example, we do various things that might impact negatively on people and we produce stuff that isn't 
directly consume for our benefit, but is produced in order to rehabilitate those people so they uh, are able to be as productive next year as they uh, were this year. Uh, so uh, we produce stuff in order to uh, rehabilitate us, the natural environment and the economy, so it is as productive next year as it is this year. So we produce stuff to rehabilitate the economy, I guess you would say, with respect to the impact of past and present activities. But we also produce stuff to defend ourselves against the potential impact of present and future economic activity. So, for example, uh, part of the Netherlands' GDP, particularly with climate change and sea level rise, is going to be raising the dike wall. So they know years in advance that they have to build in the resources and the spending to keep protecting their lowlands. They'll have to do it, yeah. but uh, if we uh, consider GDP, that'll be part of their GDP. And so if we consider that to be part of their national income, then what they're doing simply to defend themselves against rising sea level will, yeah. will be conventionally classed as na- uh, part of the national income. I wouldn't call it part of the national income because that's stuff that can't be consumed. It's stuff that's being produced simply to maintain the productive capacity of the Dutch economy. Okay. I'm going to use a simple example here to make sure I get this. Mm. So imagine we're cattle farmers mm-hmm. and this year we had 100 cows. Yep. And we got all excited and we're going to call those 100 cows, you know, according to GDP, you know, our project, you know, what we've produced for the yep. year. But the reality is we need to keep the 50 female ones to have calves Yep. because if we ate them, we're stuffed. Yeah. So in reality, we produced 100, yes. but we need, well, we need 51 of them because we need one bull. Yeah. So 49% of it could be used up and could be called income because yes, that wouldn't it. affect our ability exactly. to produce because we'd have the cows yep. that had this year's calves and we'd have some cows yep. to replace the ones that got too old and yep. some cows to be spares for anyone yep. that had a problem. So if we, right. we slaughtered them all, we do. Okay. Uh, the GDP would be 100. Yeah. Okay. It would look but, fantastic. But, but, our, but, but, our, but our national capacity. income would be 49. Okay. Because 51 would constitute consumption of capital. They, they are really a form of capital those cows that, yeah. you, that you have to set aside. So you, so GDP would be 100, but proper measure of national income would be, be 49. 49. Okay, mm. that's good. In that case, I've got a clear way to make that mm. in my head work as a little story. Tim, oh. do you need an equivalent or does that work for you too? No, I, that worked out. I, I understand. I understand yeah. that. Yep. So but if it's 49, so the national income is 49. Yeah. Yep. So we, we can, of course, that means we can consume 49. Head of cattle, you know, each year. Yes. We have to, we, if we keep maintaining 51, we can have 49 forever. Yeah. Okay. And if you think about it, if we, we could count GDP as our national income, but what's the point of that? It doesn't really tell us anything useful. Uh, you really want to know what it is you can consume on a sustainable basis uh, to make uh, income calculations worthwhile in the, in the first place. So GDP just tells you what you produce. National income should be something that tells you what you can sustainably consume and GDP overstates that in the way that you described. It seems to me we need two numbers then. We need to know this is the base level for productive capital and have we gone up or down in our base level of productive capital and then we need to know what we've produced above that point Mm. that can be consumed and we need Mm. to not ever confuse the two things Mm. as being one. Well, it's it's not that difficult because the Australian Bureau of Statistics actually calculates the consumption of fixed capital for a year. Okay. But so so uh, that now, – now you can produce more capital than you actually need to replace the capital that's worn out. That yeah. would be part of the – because you could have consumed it. Yeah. But at the very least, you've got to replace what has worn out. Yep. So uh, you subtract from GDP consumption of fixed capital. Then you work out uh, in terms of natural capital, the natural environment, uh, the depletion cost – of uh, running down various stocks of natural resources. So you subtract that. And then we can sort of pick through the, the GDP and, and what's produced and say, oh, okay, well, that's really a defensive form of expenditure. That's really a re- rehabilitative form of expenditure. So we, we subtract the depreciation of human-made capital, the depletion of natural capital, defensive and rehabilitative uh, expenditures from GDP, and that gives us our national income. And I've done measures of this. And it's obviously going to be lower, given that they're subtractions. Yes. Uh, your 
proper measure of national income is lower than GDP. So GDP overstates national income. How much does this affect the current rankings, let's say, of different countries mm. that say, you know, let's say you know, the highest GDP is is America or is China mm. or whatever it is? How much does that reorder? Yeah, if you the, count yes. it in all these other yeah. important issues about mm. what you need to put aside to maintain capital mm. or put aside to deal with potential problems in the future. Mm. It makes a big difference. Uh, for example, the country with the highest per capita GDP in the world at present is Qatar. But most of their GDP comes from depleting a non-renewable resources resource. It's oh, oil. Yeah, of course. Okay, so they're running down a capital asset yep. and they're basically consuming the proceeds. So their GDP is very high, but once you make an adjustment for the fact that they're really running down a capital asset, a natural capital asset, their GDP falls considerably. Well, the same thing yeah. must then be true for us because if we look at the mm. honking great holes we dig yeah. for iron ore, bauxite and coal mm. and we look at the ongoing degradation of farmland mm. from synthetic fertilisers and you know, uh, just soil erosion, mm-hmm. surely our GP, if GDP, it was yeah. being measured properly mm. in this way, well, no, no, don't remember. GDP is GDP. If we're measuring all these other things yeah. properly, yeah. our rehabilitation, our defence mm. aspect of it, of defending against the future, should mean we've got less and less to spend every year. Shouldn't no, we'll it? still have as much to spend. So remember, we still pay people to produce this stuff. Yep. To def- so people, so, so, uh, no, I'll turn my question around then. Yeah. Can we afford to be spending what we do when it seems like with the holes we dig and the land we degrade, mm. that our... What it, what, no, what it basically means is that every year, a greater percentage of what we produce, we don't get to enjoy. Precisely. It's just being produced to defend ourselves against, against future, future activities and rehabilitate ourselves given the, the damage that's occurred from past and present activities. So is there a calculation of, say, in Australia, like every 10 years for the last 50, what proportion of GDP would you know, be that what is necessary to defend the harm we've done? Ooh. Yeah, there, well, there is, I don't have those now, but it's been going <laughs> but it up. Exists. But, of course, GDP has been going up. Yeah. But it, it simply means that the gap between GDP and what I would class as a proper measure of national income is growing. So that gap, that bit that you're subtracting, yes. the appreciation of human-made capital, the yep. depletion of natural capital and your defensive and rehabilitative expenditures, that's growing over. T- it's not just because well, GDP is growing as well, yep. but uh, the proportion of that or that as a proportion of GDP is also growing. Yeah, defending is growing faster than GDP is growing. Maybe. Uh, yes, as a percent, yeah. But but that what we call we would call national income is still growing it's, it's, but not growing at the same rate as GDP, that's all. Wow. Okay. Look, yeah. again, I'm going to yeah. go back to my simple story. Yeah. yeah. Because we know that we need to keep our 51 cows alive every year. Yeah. Above our 51 cows, every few years we're going to need to redo the fences. Right. Every few years we're going to need to yeah. maybe redig the bore mm. or, you know, dig the dam out again. Yeah. So at some level we need to be going, okay, we thought we had 49 cows worth of, you know, spending money, but really maybe we've only got 47 cows worth because we need two cows worth always around to be making up for what the cows do, walking and eating and wrecking the side of the dam and leaning on the fences. So right. as time goes on, it, it there's, there's two levels to this. There's what it takes to maintain capital. There's also what it takes to maintain remediation mm. to stay able to be productive at a similar or, or you, know, mm. you would hope even better level. Mm. But, of course, because you're doing more of this, remember that's, that's part of GDP. So there's still part of GDP. Yeah. It just shouldn't be part of national income. Right. All right. So, yes, as, as your defensive and rehabilitative expenditures go up, so GDP goes up. But because it's part of GDP. Because it's part of, it's okay, part of GDP. Now I finally but, it's really not, get, but it shouldn't be part of national income. No, now I really get the difference. You can yeah. count it in that hole because it's what went round, but you can't count it in income because it's not we what shouldn't. you have to – Well, you shouldn't because yeah. it's not what you have to spend. It's not what you what you can consume it's yeah. and enjoy. You, you're yeah. just doing it for 
rehabilitative purpose. You're just doing it to maintain productive capacity. Yeah. I mean, the whole purpose of productive capacity is to produce goods that we can actually can consume and, and enjoy. Yeah. But this stuff that we can't consume. But a lot of it is what we consume. In, in Qatar's uh, example, a yeah. lot they're, they're running down this this capital and using the proceeds to purchase a lot of consumer goods and that's going up over time. So yeah. their consumption's rising on a per capita basis, the highest in the world, yeah. but their capacity to keep doing that is being undermined yes. by the fact that they're not finding some sort of replacement capital asset because I guess in the case of oil, we're talking about a non-renewable resource. Mm. So you can't uh, simply... Uh, extract oil on a sustainable basis but you need to find or use some of the proceeds from extracting oil to build up an alternative capital asset so that once the oil is gone you're able to have capital that can produce a a flow of goods and services that you can you can consume equivalent to what you were consuming when you were depleting the oil so if we're not doing that if we look next door to qatar we'd say look at Dubai, we look at the Emirates, where they're using a decent proportion of their money doing massive desalination plants to put water on the ground to transform the ground to make the ground more productive. They've built massive malls. They've made massive ports. So they're looking to use the oil to create other things yeah, that can be Qatar's doing the same, but but they're they're not further behind. Yeah, well, they're not doing it sufficiently. They're not. They're not replacing. And if that's the other thing, when we're talking about substitutes. Some of you've got to be careful uh, when we're talking about depleting oil. The, the very thing that uh, has to be uh, established to replace the oil oil is a form of energy, basic yep. to a large extent. Uh, you'll need to establish something, so it would have to be a renewable form of energy. Yeah, so it can't just be a shopping mall. No, that will be something physical to replace the oil, but it, it won't yep. serve the same purpose. Yep, you need to be turning it into you know mountains of solar thermal plants, yeah, out things in the like desert that, or yep. something like that. Yeah. To be your, mm. your okay. They're doing that to some right, extent, so but not sufficiently. You yeah. can't, you can't sell a male cow and then and then replace it with a female no. cow. Is the no, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So you have to maintain that productive ability. Yes. Okay. Well, again, I think the cow example certainly helped my brain. I can mm. now tell yeah, the difference between one. GDP and income. Right. So if you know a lifetime's past of treasurers talking to me on screens and and politicians talking about the significance of GDP. If we wanted to move people towards a better way of understanding where we're at, how we go with this combination of productivity and income and what we can afford to spend and how much we need to put aside to defend against you know, remediation in the future, mm. where do we find a better way to combine these things Right. Help. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, so this is how I, I you know, uh, when I, I sort of lead up to the GPI, I, I, in fact, I like to talk about national income first. Yeah. Because uh, that allows me to talk about some of the things that need to be done. Because even if you're talking about national income or you're talking about something like the genuine progress indicator, which is actually a measure of economic welfare, but I'll talk about what the difference between national income and economic welfare is soon. So similar things have to be done. You, okay. you, you, you need to maintain the productive capacity of the economy if you're going to maintain economic welfare over time. Now, I like to go from GDP to national income and then point out that even national income is not a particularly good measure of economic welfare. Now, when when you're talking about economic welfare, you're really talking about, at, at the national level, uh, we do various things uh, within the economy. It generates various benefits and various costs are incurred. There are economic costs, there are social costs, there are environmental costs. And economic welfare is quite simply the difference between the sum of all the benefits of what you do and sum of all the costs. Which gets back nicely to our cow example, that we need to keep 51 of them. We maybe need a couple of spares to pay for the fences and the dam and fixing stuff. Well, some of that will be the cost, yes. Mm. But But, it's this welfare idea that starts growing. But it's quite basic. In fact, it's it's, fairly simple economics. And and one of the things I I say about GDP when when it's used as a measure of economic welfare is that economic welfare should be benefits less cost. GDP doesn't 
measure the difference between benefits and costs. And in fact, a lot of things that are costly are just simply added. GDP just adds. Any any form of uh, economic activity keeps getting it's added, just added in, no matter what whether it's for, it's for yep. good or for bad. Yep. Now, even when you make an adjustment like I was talking about before to, to come up with national income, mm. uh, that simply gives us a, a measure of what we can sustainably consume but it still leaves out a lot of things that are important in terms of our economic welfare. It hasn't separated uh, benefits and costs. Hasn't separated which benefits seems and costs, a very and ignores some benefits. In fact, making an adjustment in that way to GDP still means that you're overlooking a lot of uh, economic benefits that are generated within the informal part of the economy. Now, what do I mean by the informal part of the economy? The, the formal part of the economy is the is that part of the economy that's captured by national accounts. That's the uh, economic activity that is undertaken within formal markets where everything gets a price. So, for example, if I, perch, I go to a, a cafe, I purchase a meal, that meal, the value of that meal will be uh, part of the GDP. It will appear in the national accounts. If I go home and I make the same meal myself, it will not be included in the nation's GDP. So it won't be counted as, uh, as if it's, yep. it, it's contributed to my well-being. If I'm just as good at cooking as the, 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 the chef at the cafe, I just didn't feel like cooking at the time, then what happens is that uh, the uh, meal that I purchased, which will be part of even of national income if I'm making allowances for you know depreciation of capital and so forth, that will be counted as part of economic welfare, but a meal cooked within the household, unpaid, won't. And it can so, go even further than that because mm-hmm. if we assumed you bought all the ingredients in the shopping centre, then that part of the activity is still going to be in mm-hmm. the formal economy. Yes, but, but if the you value went, that's added is not. Yeah, but if you went home and you picked stuff out of your garden that yes. you'd grown yourself... Yeah, that's not added. So yeah. it could be multiple steps of a single thing mm. fit in this informal economy. Yes. Okay. So even... GDP and even the adjusted measure to get a measure of national income excludes the informal economy, and okay. it's enormous. And, and to put it in perspective, I, I, I just remember uh, I was in my car and I think I was listening to, there was some interview on uh, Radio National, uh, and it was around the time there was quite a hot debate about to what extent governments should fund childcare. And the person that was being interviewed made a remarkable statement. They said, you know, the, the, the childcare industry basically didn't exist 50 years ago. And I thought to myself, well, what, what did children look after themselves 50 years ago? Was well, no, informal. it did. It was all in the informal yeah. economy. And, and, in fact, I've done a, a sort of a, a back-of-the-envelope sort of calculation and I've worked out that about 20 to 25% of the growth in Australia's GDP over the last 50 years has been nothing more than the transference of economic activity from the informal to the formal oh, economy. So more economic activities now occurring within the formal economy than ever than, before. before. It gets picked up by national accounts. So, uh, yeah, about, about a quarter of, of this increase in GDP is, in fact, not an increase in economic activity. It's, it's just, just formalising. It's just formalised. It's just, it's just been captured <laughs> in, in national accounts where it wasn't captured so, before. So now, the GPI has an item for the value of unpaid household labour uh, value of volunteer labour and even value of the shadow economy, excluding wow. unpaid household. So imagine, the, like even you're effectively including the economic benefit or or, or wel- welfare kind of benefit mm. of someone, say, educating themselves about economics by listening to this podcast as opposed to getting a formal education at university. Yeah, no, no, yeah. not that this is a yeah. no, but, equivalent, but, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's that same kind of thing. Mm. This is you know an informal. Mm. Three people spending time to create something that other people will consume. Mm. If it was formal, Mm. it would add to GDP in multiple ways. Yes, Yes, but no one's paying for this. Because it's Mm. informal, Mm. it's not adding in any way. That's not. Now, now, that helps uh, me understand stuff too. So, where is it? So, the gent, so any transference of economic activity from the informal to the formal economy will increase GDP. It will even increase that adjusted measure of that I talked about, that national income. It won't change the GPI figure. Is this part of the reason why governments across the world today are talking about wanting to get rid of cash so that as many things are tracked as possible? Is this a way to bring the informal mm. in the formal to try and get the no. formal number bigger or No, not different really. I mean, because if you think about it, a lot of informal economic activity doesn't involve cash anyway. No. 
Yeah. But I just wonder if it was a way to pull the last of the informal in as possible to make it look like there's growth. Is it is it a way to sort of fudge growth, maybe? No, not no? really. Okay. No, I wouldn't say that. But but it's just indicating that you have this thing called GDP. Okay. Which is classed as national income. It's masked, classed as a measure of economic welfare. And it's excluding something that's valuable and it's quite large too. It's mm. enormous. The value is quite large. Because there's been a lot of people who've criticised the genuine progress indicator. It's got a lot of cost mm-hmm. items in it, and they have argued that it's biased against benefits. And I say, well, okay, well, you know, you can save that if you want, but it includes various items to include the informal economy, and that's an enormous plus. So it's not biased towards costs when it's including a positive that's not included in the GDP. Yep. Okay, well, we've got to make sure that we don't get the cow in front of the cart at this point mm. because, you know, clearly we can see that what we've got, most of us don't well understand or use properly. Mm. So if we need something better that can explain these issues of the difference between what's produced, what income we have, what we need to keep to deal with defending against the future and running down of capital – we need another measure, mm. and it's going to have to balance cost and benefits. It doesn't have to balance. You, you, no, you don't want to balance. Well, no, the, sorry, it's got to count both. You've things. got to, you've got to count got to them, count and you've both. got to separate them, and then you've got yep. to subtract costs from benefits. benefits. You want to increase the difference between benefits and costs. Yeah, over time, ideally, you want your costs to be covered and your benefits to keep going up a little yeah, bit that's that's to it. have more income to spend. Well, that sounds like more consumption. Uh, no, well, no, it does. So. Uh, it, you don't have to con- – so if we, we can be talking about uh, parts of the informal economy which increase benefits and therefore mm-hmm. the GPI that have nothing to do with consumption. Right, right, right. And, 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 of course, one other way you can increase the genuine progress indicator is not to increase benefits but to lower costs. And a lot of the costs are environmental costs. So if you can use resources more efficiently so you can consume just as much but – by using fewer resources, lower your environmental costs, you increase the difference between benefits and costs. Not by raising benefits, but by lowering costs. Uh, you can lower if, through, if you move towards a full employment economy. You lower social costs and you're more than likely going to lower the rate of crime. So you're going to, because there's a cost of crime item in the, in the genuine progress indicator. So there's various social and environmental costs. You can lower those costs, not consume any more and uh, therefore not have to increase benefits in order to increase the gap between benefits and costs uh, and therefore increase the GPI. But, of course, if you're not increasing uh, those benefits through increased production and increased consumption, the GDP is not going up. So a lot of things that would increase the GPI wouldn't necessarily be increasing the GDP, but a lot of things that would be increasing the GDP could actually be lowering the GPI. In fact, in many cases, they are. So when... And how did the GPI, the Genuine Progress Index, emerge? About the, uh, well, you could probably go right back to 1972. Wow. Interesting time about 1972. There was, it was, it was um, I, I think it was a crucial. I just think it was a very crucial time where, where the human race actually looked itself in the mirror and, and thought uh, perhaps, uh, you know, we needed to go down an alternative pathway. And then we had the oil price crisis shock spike of 1973 and again 1979 stagflation of the 1970s and instead of going in the right direction we went in the same direction but but on, on a larger scale <laughs> yeah. because not because we had in the late 1960s there was a very big change in the way young people they'd seen uh, the benefits that had been derived from their parents post-world war ii period producing goods and services they felt that they had enough uh, and more consumption wasn't seen to be a desirable thing. So, yeah, you, know, you had the, that era of uh, the, the hippie sort of era. And, but, 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 but apart from that, you had uh, Paul Ehrlich. And by the way, Paul Ehrlich's going to be in Adelaide. Is it people are aware of that? Do anyone know who Paul Ehrlich is? He's a very, very famous biologist. Okay. No, He's probably no about idea. 90 years of age. Jesus. He's very worth uh, while seeing. Uh, he wrote a, a very well-known book called The Population Bomb in 1968. Oh, okay, I know the name of the book, but yeah. I didn't know who wrote it. I wonder it. if yeah, we can get him on the podcast. I mean, 90, he might not know what a podcast He's is. He's not easy to get hold of. I see. He's okay. a famous man. Yes, yes. okay. Well, we were aiming to be infamous. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, so there was a po- – and in fact, he appeared on the G- uh, Johnny Carson show. show to explain yeah. it. Yep. Yeah, to talk about it. So 
people were talking about these things. It wasn't yeah. just underground. And then, of course, you had the limits to growth the, um, yes. in 1972, Don't the Stockholm yep. Conference in 1972, where the world actually thought, well, hang on, maybe more consumption is not the way to go. But for some reason, we panicked with stagflation period of the 1970s and we thought the way out of uh, the stagflation of the 1970s was to, go with, yeah. was, was to go with the neoliberal policies and that ushered in the neoliberal era and here we are. Uh, and we, so we, we, we were at a crossroad. We went in the wrong direction, in, in my opinion. But anyway, uh, around that time, 1972, a couple of mainstream economists uh, thought, well, okay, perhaps GDP is not necessarily a good indication of the economic welfare of a country. Uh, that was William Nordhaus, uh, who's just, I think, fairly recently won the, the, the so-called Nobel Prize in, in economics. There really isn't a, a Nobel Prize in economics, uh, if people weren't aware of that. Oh, and really? another bloke okay. called James Tobin who won the, many years ago, the so-called uh, Nobel Prize in Economics. Uh, they did a very, very crude sort of study uh, in 1972 where they looked at various benefits and, and, and they subtracted various costs. They did it for the US economy. Didn't really show anything uh, special, but I think that was because it, the, the, uh, they called it a measure of economic welfare. It only included uh, about eight benefit and cost items and had that the only environmental cost item was the the cost of increasing urbanization so resource depletion wasn't even counted what have you and and so that that seemed to um just wither on the vine for a while um and then in the late 1980s a book came out by herman daly who's a famous ecological economist uh i don't know if people have heard of herman daly anyway mm -hmm. he and, and another fellow uh, john cobb uh brought out a book called for the Common Good, and I recommend that book to anyone. So that came out in 1989, and there was an appendix in the back of the book where they came up with a thing called an Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. And basically the genuine progress indicator is the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, but with a different name. Okay. So this got a lot of publicity about 30 years ago. Uh, there was a series, and they only did the calculation for the USA, they were Americans, and then there were a series of calculations for mainly European countries uh, into the 19, early 1990s to about mid-1990s. It wasn't gaining much traction and then someone decided, okay, maybe it's the name's got something to do with it. It sounds very academic, <laughs> an index of sustainable economic welfare. So to give it some sort of popular appeal, they, they called it a genuine progress indicator. But, and it hasn't really changed that much since then. The approach, the methods used... Uh, You'll find that from one study to the next, there might be a slight change in the way certain benefits and costs are calculated, and that's because some of the data, particularly environmental cost data and social cost data, it's very, very poor. Sadly, we, we live in a world where the data that's available is dictated to a large extent by the popular indicators. Yeah. So if you've got indicators that don't really take into account environmental costs, there's no data calculated yeah, no on way environmental costs. To to count them. No, that's yep. right. So uh, the methods you use to calculate some of these environmental costs are dictated by the data you have, and I have to tell you, it's some of it's appalling. So that's that's where it all began. Uh, the GPI hasn't really gone anywhere. So most of your listeners probably have never heard of it. The genuine progress indicator. I had this great idea, I don't know if it's really going to come to fruition, that I was going to calculate the GPI. I've got all this data, this World Bank data and what have you. A somewhat simplified GPI for every country on earth. I thought that one of the problems with the GPI is that in the past there's been an ad hoc GPI study of this country here then a few years later of that country there and if it was done for every country uh, using the same data, same methodology, uh, bringing the results out, releasing the results at the same time so you can make international comparisons, that might uh, give the GPI the publicity that really needs to take off. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to take uh, more than one person to do it. It's an enormous amount of work. I was a bit naive thinking I could do it myself and will require resources and money it's, that it's I don't have. A, it's, a, it's a pity that the universities won't lend it to you because it's one of those things that seems like... It would be a but, great foundation but, set of figures mm, to have. Absolutely. Available. It seems like one of those things that and until you have that set of data, mm. no one's going to believe yeah. that In it's that worthwhile. Yeah. 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 
Um, so what do you think it would cost time and cash-wise <laughs> to get it done? Because <laughs> uh, you know, it sounds like you're, you're working with such big numbers here. You surely would have thought, how many people do you need, how much time and, you know? Uh, if you really w- ideally, oh, ideally, you'd have 25 people working on it and you'd have $2 or $3 million being spent. Okay. Not, yeah. So what you're saying is a mid-sized sensible research grant yeah. and a fairly big crew could yeah. knock it over. You could knock it over, yep. Yeah. No problem. I've got the template to do it. So once again, it's a question yeah. of commitment to getting a useful new way of doing comparison and analysing the impact of policy. Mm. Should be something every policymaker wants. But... Yeah. Mm, they don't know they want it. Yeah, let's not... No, they yeah. don't know they want it. Well, Maybe we're assuming that good policymakers exist. Oh, they do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, tell, I'll tell you why... earnest policymakers exist. Sure. T- policymakers don't like the GPI. I'll tell you why, because if I show a, 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 a diagram where I've got a comparison of the GDP and GPI, one of the things about the GDP is that apart from the odd year here and there, it goes up. It's a good news story. Yeah, it's yeah. a good news story. GPI is not a good news story. So if you're running an election campaign, you want to show something that's going up and is continu- continuing to go up. You don't want something that sort of flattens out, sometimes falls a bit, goes up a little bit, Unless goes you're sort of nowhere. Opposition, like would it be something that, say, Bernie Sanders could use to? That's a good point. Mm. Uh, uh, this particular conference, this Sustainable Prosperity MMT conference in Adelaide in January, deal, I'm yeah. going to be talking about the GPI. Lovely. Awesome. We'll yell and cheer. And, and uh, hopefully uh, Stephanie Kelton will uh, be present when I give my presentation and she might uh, perhaps have a word to Bernie Sanders. She's the economic, economic well, advisor to Bernie Sanders and maybe Bernie Sanders will jump on board. And The uh, thing that annoys me with this is, okay, the UN constantly wants to be able to say what it does and doesn't achieve through you know mm. development goals and development yeah. spending. It would seem to me from the little bit I understand mm. now about the genuine progress indicator, that yeah. if the UN did this out of its standard mm. budget yeah. with one team of competent people, mm. it would have a foundation tool set mm-hmm. to assess yeah. every year the yeah. effectiveness of what it does and to say to its critics, this worked, this yeah. didn't work, so we're yeah. doubling down on what did work yeah. and questioning what didn't yeah. and actually assess assistance to multiple countries in a quantifiable way mm. that would stop criticism that the UN is essentially a talk shop mm. for doing overall. Mm. Yeah. Now, the United Nations would be an ideal institution to finance this. And I think uh, now they have developed a fairly crude uh, measure of human development. You've probably heard of the Human Development Index. Yes. That, okay. that, that they've produced in 1990, it's Mickey Mouse, it, honestly. Okay. So was that an attempt to do a baby GPI no, within the nothing, UN? No, it's nothing like or the Or they GPI. invented it out of nowhere and just did a weird little No, they thing. didn't invent, invent it out of they, – they based it on uh, Amata Sen's capabilities oh, okay. and functionings. Yep, 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 yep. I know about Amata uh, Sen. But, and, and it was designed to be sort of an alternative to GDP, but, it, but really it wasn't. It's, yep. it's only three components to it. And uh, of equal weighting, and one of those is gross national income, which is slightly different to GDP, but it's pretty much the same. So one third of their their index isn't helping. Is, is basically the thing that they're trying to replace GDP. Yeah. The other uh, two components are life expectancy and uh, something to do with adult literacy. I think they've it was, but there there is again they're leaving out the informal economy. Yeah. They're saying that. Anything to do with the natural environment's got nothing to do with your well-being. Yep. So it's just GDP or gross national income, per capita gross national income, adult literacy and life expectancy. And that's it. It's a very, very crude indicator. Now, mm. what I have proposed is that calculate – I wouldn't call it the human development ind- index. I, I was going to call it the genuine human development index. And all you need to do is replace G. NI, the gross national income, which is virtually the same as GDP, with the GPI. Because if you're doing that already, you've got one third that is now, you know, solid analysis. Well, but it's all, but that GPI is taking into account environmental factors. Yep. And one other factor that I, I, I neglected to point out that the GPI includes that the GDP doesn't, and that is changes in the distribution of income. So there's yeah. a weighting on the welfare contribution of consumption based on changes in the distribution of income. 
And the, and the reasoning behind that is, uh, is that the benefits, the additional benefits of extra consumption for a rich person are much less than they are for a poor person. Yes. So to, to help explain that, imagine if Australia's richest person's consumption, weekly consumption, went up by, by $100, $100 a week. It would virtually have no, no impact you know, on life. Now, now imagine Australia's poorest person's weekly consumption going up by $100 per week. Yeah, huge Go up impact. a lot. So yeah. if, if everything remained the same and we just took away $100 worth of consumption from Australia's richest person, it would have, given, given that an addition wouldn't add much, then a subtraction wouldn't take much from that person's well-being. So if Australia's richest person's weekly consumption fell by $100, it would have virtually no impact okay, on, that, on that person's well-being. Yep. And we gave that consumption to Australia's poorest person, it would add to that person's well-being significantly. So total welfare of the country would go up without any change in consumption. The richest person's consumption has gone down $100 per week. The poorest person's consumption has gone up by $100 a week. Total consumption of the country hasn't changed, but the well-being of the country. So redistribution of income is going to affect the welfare contribution of consumption. There's a weighting of that value of consumption, the welfare contribution of consumption in the GPI that's not taken into account in the GDP. Wow. And and measuring uh, things like this isn't just the spread for, for countries. We kind of do effectively a, a GDP when we look at individual welfare, so microeconomics, let's say that people on Newstart or Youth Allowance yeah. or whatever it is, all that calculates how much welfare they get is their it's gross income. Mm. It's but it's before tax, it's before costs, it's before yeah, yep. any of these things, and then their, their subsidized income is yeah is yep. is basically based off that, which is yep. kind of how we're measuring. And when we talk about redistribution, we only talk about the dollars. Yes, not what costs the dollars have to offset. Or, yeah, what, what benefits, benefits the dollars can add. Mm. So wow. God, are we missing the point? No kidding. And sorry, oh, so, oh, just, sorry. Yeah, so the reason why I talk, I mentioned is so that redistribution factor would be included in this genuine human development index if you replace the gross national income which is that one third yes. of, of the human with the GPI so you'd be you'd be including environmental factors informal economy social costs uh, you'd be counting the impact of changes in the distribution of income would be all factored into that index and what I find is you get an index which gives you a much better indication of the well-being of, of respective countries than does the United Nations Human Development Index. So United Nations have done something. That's, that's, that, that they produced their first release, uh, the uh, Human Development Index results in 1990. They've done really nothing since. They, uh, there have been – so the, there's this thing called the United Nations Systems, System of National Accounting all right, so there's, a, there's a, a formal procedure in the way in which countries calculate their GDP. There was a lot of work that was done in the 1990s to try and take account of environmental factors. But the only revision reform of the system of national accounts is the need for countries to develop satellite environmental accounts. But it's not counted in, in economic measures at all. It's just this thing over there. Was just really to keep uh, environmentalists off their back. Uh, so yeah, countries have to do. So you, you know, you can go to the Australian Bureau of Statistics website, and every five years they'll they'll do a, sort of a, a stock take of you know certain uh, resource stocks, forest stocks, uh, iron ore stocks, and so forth. But it's not incorporated into any economic uh, indicator, uh, which is what's required. And what what happens when you're talking about uh, the GPI, we, we, we're not just talking about economic. And that's the other thing. It's not just benefits and costs. And it, it, it's not just economic benefits and costs. We're talking about social and environmental. Yeah, so it's a full range of benefits and costs. In. You've changed mm. the whole nature yeah. by adding the word welfare. Mm. It's such a different word and so critical. You know, if we're talking about the economic welfare of our country, then we have to have costs considered and yes. benefits considered. All costs. And yeah, not just economic, but yeah. social and environmental costs. And then, then, then things that raises issues like, yeah. uh, well, you know, uh, what's the cost of unemployment? How is that affecting our well-being? Yeah. Is, yeah. is it okay to have a macroeconomic policy that's designed to keep inflation down if it leads to five percent of the labour force at best, uh, well, at the lowest rate, unemployed? Um, yeah. Which is sort of that. Uh, I don't know how much. Uh, 
uh, macroeconomics people know, but yeah, the, the, the current sort of policy is uh, that way we, 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 we try and control inflation mm. is we have a pool of unemployed labour. Yeah. And so they are used as like the buffer Yes. To, to yeah. where, uh, you know, and of course, the, the modern monetary theorists will talk about using the job guarantee as the mm. buffer. So, mm. yeah. uh, the, th- the way to control inflation is not to have a, uh, this pool of unemployed people, but uh, if they're going to be people who would otherwise be unemployed, they at least would be on a job in, or in a job earning a minimum living income on mm. a thing called a job guarantee. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, which would have, which yeah. would boost the GPI, yeah. absolutely, because yeah. it would, yeah, would, would improve the distribution of income. Yeah. It would lower the, the cost of uh, labour underutilisation, which yeah. is a cost item in the GPI yes. and so forth. Yeah. Probably lower crime rates, yeah. lower the cost of crime yes. and so forth. Like it seems to me that if you use the the job guarantee to mm. only address things that are costs to society, what a great use of creating cash and people who have time and want to do something meaningful mm-hmm. to get a better outcome that's going to you know, grow your GPI and grow your GDP. Mm. It's the win-win. It may not necessarily grow the GDP. You can hope. Yeah. Is, well, no, okay we need, well, my, my view is we should just ignore the GDP. Yeah, but, it, well, it's yeah, but in be, the short it's term, be, to, the, the short term to buy people across who are fixated on it, like people are fixated on neoliberalism. Oh, yeah, hegemonic yeah. powers. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you want the hegemonic power to start looking at you like you're helping rather than as a bug. Mm, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's it's really interesting because it comes back to the idea that Stephen talked about on the podcast, which is that the we're not there to serve the economy. We don't talk about no, the economy it's like it's sick serve, or it's yeah, well yeah, or whatever. And it is. The environment. It's there to serve yeah. us. So, yeah. you know, we use the the GPI to serve us. It's the economy serves the welfare of people, which is why you need to consider more factors than just dollars and cents. Yep. Wow. And this sounds quite compatible, I think, with some of the things that, uh, you know, Stephen has talked about and we've talked about Mm. in the podcast in in relation to MMT. And it kind of almost seems pretty compatible with a UBI though, which uh, yeah, un- universal basic income, which which Stephen doesn't necessarily believe in. He believes no, in the, the job guarantee. I so, I the, yeah, I, I agree with. I, I'm not a big. F- in principle, the universal basic income is a great idea. The macroeconomics doesn't stack up. What you would find is if you gave every because every it's universal, so everyone gets yeah. this minimum income, is that. To prevent it from being hyperinflationary, you'd virtually have to tax most of it back again. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's that critical uh, thing. I didn't see. I would have supported a UBI until I started understanding the basics mm, of MMT mm, and saw the significance yes. of inflation. And mm. the minute I understood how inflation really works, as mm. opposed to how the neoliberals mm. explain it works, mm. is that basic income guarantee and inflation, the two things probably go hand in hand, and you have to be. Sweden, but more extreme on your taxation. And in a sense, you're saying to people, you're going to be fine, but you're going to have so little money of your own that you can choose to spend in any way you want. Mm. So you end up with a degree of social engineering that I think too many people would go, that's not the society I want to live in. Even if I'm well-fed, even if I'm well-educated, even if my healthcare is good, my choices to live as I want and do and learn and be Mm. are too diminished. It scares too many people because it sounds too much like communism. Well, in a sense, it's it's stranger than communism because Mm. communism was the vanguard said, we're trying to get you to a utopia. Mm. This is not aiming at any utopia. Mm. It's saying we just have to keep cranking the handle on the mechanism Mm. and as long as you Mm. are well-fed, well-educated and your healthcare is good, you have to tolerate wherever that leaves yeah, us. People come secondary to mm. the mechanism. Yes, so the yeah. mechanism becomes more powerful. Mm. The other thing about, which is becoming really interesting about universal basic income, there's a lot of people on the right who are becoming fans of universal basic income. Well, they, well, they were in the 70s yeah. Yeah, yeah. when Nixon was uh, behind it. And, and the reason why they're doing it, some people are arguing that they're doing this, is because uh, what they feel the universal basic income can do is help the privatisation of uh, publicly provided goods and services. <laughs> Give so, them control. No, so, no, no. So what you do is you say, okay, here's your universal basic income. We'll privatise yeah. yeah. uh, education, uh, health and so forth. And don't whinge and complain when uh, the government's not providing it because the government's not there to provide no, it anymore. We've outsourced it. Buy, pay for it with your universal basic income. Yeah. Pay for it with your universe. That's what your universal basic income's there mm. for you to buy the now privatised yep. health. So uh, it's the ultimate way to make it enti- entirely corporate. And, and less, yes. unless yes. everything becomes like cooperatives, right? 
Oh, yeah, but in a cooperative, the point of a cooperative is the you know, cooperative is meant to do the best for everyone, yes. not rip everyone off. Yes, no, that's what I'm saying. So unless <laughs> yeah. you have all cooperatives, say, yeah. for instance, yeah. cooperative yeah. And <laughs> education again, system. No, cooperative is an awesome work. idea in most systems, yeah. but yeah, it, it couldn't exist if you corporatized Everything. the spending right. of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Phil, <laughs> Phil, we've only covered half what we wanted to cover today. Thank you very That's much. Right. Would you like to come back in a few weeks and talk about ecological yes. economics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, talk uh, about anything. Thank you. Thank you for your passion. It's been um, it's just awesome again to learn yeah. so much more about economics. I want to get you back on again because sometimes when we get to talk about these things, it becomes really mm. scary because all of a sudden you realise that the the metrics we're using we're just falling far behind mm. in you know providing uh, what what people need and what countries need in terms mm. of not just statistics but in um indicators of progress mm. so i just gave a presentation a couple of weeks ago for modern money australia the melbourne branch on the gpi cool and so i've got a powerpoint presentation Man, we can put it up on our facebook page if you want us oh to. yeah that's fine yeah. i'll send it to you yeah, yeah, like we, can, we can put stuff up and people can come and look you know we've avoided the kind of thing of trying to bug people all the time right. and just hope they come to us when they want to. Right. Is there anything that you'd like us to link to? Yeah, like if you've put it on your own website or something. We can I haven't yet, but I but uh, yeah, but I can just email yeah. the, okay. yeah. the, the we'll file up on and Facebook. you can stick it on Facebook. Yeah. Yep. I'm happy so, for that. At Blind Insights, capital B, capital I. Well, well, that's kind of all we have time for at the moment. Uh, we'll have to, again, like David said, Bill, we'll have to get you back on the podcast uh, another time to talk more about the um, ecological side of things a little bit more in depth. Thank you very much for your passion. Thank you for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. And thank you very much, David. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, audience. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.